Okay, so continuing with the theme on illustrating right view as expounded by Sariputta in the Samaditi Sutta. And uh, this aspect of right view that Sariputta mentions is aging and death. And uh, this particular sutta that I've chosen is the Nakula Pitta Sutta. It's the uh, sung, uh, it's in the connected discourses on the aggregates, the Kanda Sangyutta, which is number twenty-two of the Sangyutta Nikaya, and uh, it is the first sutta. So Sangyutta twenty-two, sutta number one. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling among the Bhagas at Sungsumaragira in the Besakala Grove, the Deer Park. Then the householder, Nakulapita, approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him, sat down to one side, and said to him, I am old, venerable sir, aged, burdened with years, advanced in life, come to the last stage, afflicted in body, often ill. I really get to see. This is so relatable. <laughs> I rarely get to see the Blessed One and the bhikkhus worthy of esteem. Let the Blessed One exhort me, Venerable Sir. Let him instruct me, since that would lead to my welfare and happiness for a long time. So it is, householder, so it is. This body of yours is afflicted, weighed down, encumbered. If anyone carrying around this body were to claim to be healthy even for a moment, what is that due to other than foolishness? Therefore, householder, you should train yourself thus. Even though I am afflicted in body, my mind will be unafflicted. Thus should you train yourself. Then the householder Nakulapitta, having delighted and rejoiced in the Blessed One's statement, rose from his seat, and having paid homage to the Blessed One, keeping him on his right, he approached the Venerable Sariputta. Having paid homage to the Venerable Sariputta, he sat down to one side, and the Venerable Sariputta then said to him, Householder, your faculties are serene, your facial complexion is pure and bright. Did you get to hear a Dhamma talk today in the presence of the Blessed One? Why not, Venerable Sir? Just now I was anointed by the Blessed One with the ambrosia of a Dhamma talk. With what kind of ambrosia of a Dhamma talk did the Blessed One anoint you, householder? Here, Venerable Sir, I approach the Blessed One, and he repeats the entire conversation with the Buddha. It was with the ambrosia of such a Dhamma talk, Venerable Sir, that the Blessed One anointed me. Didn't it occur to you, householder, to question the Blessed One further as to how one is afflicted in body and afflicted in mind, and how one is afflicted in body but not afflicted in mind? We would come from far away, Venerable Sir, to learn the meaning of this statement from the Venerable Sariputta. It would be good indeed if the Venerable Sariputta would clear up the meaning of this statement. Then listen and attend closely, householder, I will speak. Yes, Venerable Sir, the householder Nikolapita replied. The Venerable Sariputta said this, How householder is one afflicted in body and afflicted in mind? Here, householder, an uninstructed worldling, 
who is not a seer of the noble ones and is unskilled and undisciplined in their dhamma, who is not a seer of superior persons and is unskilled and undisciplined in their dhamma, regards form as self, or self as possessing form, or form as in-self, or self as in form. He lives obsessed with the notions, I am form, form is mine. As he lives obsessed by these notions, that form of his changes and alters. With the change and alteration of form, there arise in him sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. He regards feeling as self, or self as possessing feeling, or feeling as in self, or self as in feeling. He lives obsessed by the notions, I am feeling, feeling is mine. As he lives obsessed by these notions, that feeling of his changes and alters. With the change and alteration of feeling, there arise in him sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. He regards perception as self, or self as possessing perception, or perception as in-self, or self as in-perception. He lives obsessed by the notions, I am perception, perception is mine. As he lives obsessed by these notions, that perception of his changes and alters. With the change and alteration of perception, there arise in him sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. He regards volitional formations as self, or self as possessing volitional formations, or volitional formations as in-self, or self as in volitional formations. He lives obsessed by the notions, I am volitional formations. Volitional formations are mine. As he lives obsessed by these notions, those volitional formations of his change and alter. With the change and alteration of volitional formations, there arise in him sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. He regards consciousness as self, or self as possessing consciousness, or consciousness as in-self, or self as in consciousness. He lives obsessed by the notions, I am consciousness, consciousness is mine. As he lives obsessed by these notions, that consciousness of his changes and alters. With the change and alteration of consciousness, there arise in him sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. It is in such a way, householder, that one is afflicted in body and afflicted in mind. And how, householder, is one afflicted in body, but not afflicted in mind? Here, householder, the instructed, noble disciple, who is a seer of the noble ones, and is skilled and disciplined in their dhamma, who is a seer of superior persons, and is skilled and disciplined in their dhamma, does not regard form as self, or self as possessing form, or form as in-self, or self as in-form, he does not live obsessed by the notions, I am form, form is mine. As he lives unobsessed by these notions, that form of his changes and alters. With the change and alteration of form, there do not arise in him sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. He does not regard feeling as self, or self as possessing feeling, or feeling as in-self, or self as in-feeling. He does not live obsessed by the notions, I am feeling, feeling is mine. 
as he lives unobsessed by these notions, that feeling of his changes and alters. With the change and alteration of feeling, there do not arise in him sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. He does not regard perception as self, or self as possessing perception, or perception as in-self, or self as in-perception. He does not live obsessed by the notions, I am perception, perception is mine. As he lives unobsessed by these notions, that perception of his changes and alters. With the change and alteration of perception, there do not arise in him sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. He does not regard volitional formations as self, or self as possessing volitional formations, or volitional formations as in-self, or self as in volitional formations. He does not live obsessed by the notions, I am volitional formations, volitional formations are mine. As he lives unobsessed by these notions, those volitional formations of his change and alter, with the change and alteration of volitional formations, there do not arise in him sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. He does not regard consciousness as self or self as possessing consciousness or consciousness as in-self or self as in-consciousness. He does not live obsessed by the notions, I am consciousness, consciousness is mine. As he lives unobsessed by these notions, that consciousness of his changes and alters, with the change and alteration of consciousness, there do not arise in him sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. It is in such a way, householder, that one is afflicted in body, but not afflicted in mind. This is what the Venerable Sariputta said, elated, the householder Nakulapita delighted in the Venerable Sariputta's statement. The next uh, sutta that, uh, suttas that I wanted to read are Sanyutta 55, 21, and 22. And those are both suttas given to Mahanama, the Buddha's cousin. And uh, Sangyutta 55 is the Sotapati Sangyutta, the, uh, the, the section on stream entry. Thus have I heard, on one occasion the Blessed One was dwelling among the Sakyans at Kapilavatu in Nagroda's park. Then Mahanama the Sakyan approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him, sat down to one side and said to him, and Mahanama was the... Uh, say, the chief head Sakyan or the, 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 uh, the ruler of, the, of that principality. Venerable Sir, this Kapilavattu is rich and prosperous, populous, crowded, with congested thoroughfares. In the evening, when I am entering Kapilavattu after visiting the Blessed One or the bhikkhus worthy of esteem, I come across a stray elephant, a stray horse, a stray chariot, a stray cart, a stray man. On that occasion, Venerable Sir, my mindfulness regarding the Blessed One becomes muddled. My mindfulness regarding the Dhamma becomes muddled. My mindfulness regarding the Sangha becomes muddled. The thought then occurs to me, if at this moment I should die, what would be my destination? What would be my future born? Don't be afraid, Mahanama. Don't be afraid, Mahanama. Your death will not be a bad one. Your demise will not be a bad one. 
When a person's mind has been fortified over a long time by faith, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom, right here, crows, vultures, hawks, dogs, jackals, or various creatures eat his body, consisting of form, composed of the four great elements, originating from mother and father, built up out of rice and gruel, subject to impermanence, to being worn and rubbed away, to breaking apart and dispersal. But his mind, which has been fortified over a long time by faith, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom, that goes upward, goes to distinction. Suppose, Mahanama, a man submerges a pot of ghee or a pot of oil in a deep pool of water and breaks it. All of its shards and fragments would sink downwards, but the ghee or oil there would rise upwards. So too, Mahanama, when a person's mind has been fortified over a long time by faith, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom, right here, crows or various creatures eat his body, but his mind, which has been fortified over a long time by faith, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom, that goes upwards, goes to distinction. Don't be afraid, Mahanama. Don't be afraid, Mahanama. Your death will not be a bad one. Your demise will not be a bad one. The next one is uh, Sutta 22, which is is a reap. It's it's also to Mahanama, and it's a repeat of uh, of the the whole sutta. Uh, and but then it it finishes off. Don't be afraid, Mahanama. Don't be afraid, Mahanama. Your death will not be a bad one. Your demise will not be a bad one. A noble disciple who possesses four things, slants, slopes, and inclines towards Nibbana. What for? Here, Mahanama, a noble disciple possesses confirmed confidence in the Buddha, confirmed confidence in the Dhamma, confirmed confidence in the Sangha, and he possesses the virtues dear to the noble ones, unbroken, unstained, uh, leading to concentration. Suppose, Mahanama, a tree was slanting, sloping, and inclining towards the east. If it was cut down at its foot, in what direction would it fall? In whatever direction it was slanting, sloping, and inclining, venerable sir. So too, Mahanama, a noble disciple who possesses these four things, slants, slopes, and inclines towards Nibbana. So that's actually a, a very interesting sutta because the, uh, the commentarial traditions and the uh, later traditions uh, talk about this. And there's various illustrations in, say, like in the Visuddhimagga of uh, and, and in commentarial literature of the uh, you know some accomplished being slipping up at the end and having a, 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 a an unskillful thought and ending up being reborn as a as a bug in a in a, a robe somewhere or you know some terrible rebirth um, and that uh, um, the the sutta sutta tra- tradition. Um, really counters that, and sort of they, you know, really what what is more important is is the say the habits that we have created over time through our life, 
and what our mind would normally go to uh, in, uh, in any general circumstances so that the uh, recollections of and faith in, in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, uh, faith in, and confidence in one's virtue, uh, the, the sense of, of having developed the, these uh, faith, virtue, learning. Sadda sila sutta jhaka panya, those are the collection of, of, of teachings that, uh, uh, that the, uh, the Buddha used. So, so faith, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. Uh, that is what uh, has the, the major input or import uh, on the mind at that time. So those were the suttas I had for reading the reading. And next, continue with the readings of Ajahn Chah. And uh, uh, this is, uh, we didn't get through the introduction of from Ajahn Chah uh, in this book, Being Dhamma. So we will continue. No matter where you are, no matter what your situation, it is possible for you to be practicing Dhamma well. Even if you are young, it's something for you to do. Don't leave it to the old folks to do. Mostly, this is what everyone thinks now. When I'm older, I will start going to the monasteries and spend some time in Dhamma. Now I can't do it. There are a lot of things to take care of first, so I have to wait until I'm older. They pass the buck to their elders. I don't know how great it is to be old, actually. Are there any old folks where you live? What kind of shape are they in? Could they keep up with you in a foot race? Their teeth fall out, their sight is weak, their hearing is going. When they stand up, they groan. When they sit down, they groan again. Yet, when we are young, we like to think, when I'm older, I will do it. Somehow we get the idea that in old age we will be energetic and robust. Old Mr. Kiam in the village here used to carry big planks around when he was a young man. Now he has to lean on a cane to walk. Life's like this, so don't get these funny ideas, please. While we are still alive, let's pay attention to good and evil. Whatever is wrong and bad, let's try to avoid doing. Whatever is good, let's make efforts to do. That's all. These are things that anyone can practice. You don't need to leave it for old age. Come on, you've seen aged people, haven't you? Every move they make is accompanied by groans and creaking. Don't you know why? Yet even so, we close our eyes and ears and say, let me finish with this first. Let me take care of that piece of business. Wait until I get older, then I'll go to the monastery. Can you understand this? When you're old, it's hard to sit for long. Listening to teachings, you might hear clearly or understand well. So don't wait for old age. Practice steadily and continuously. Before old age comes, you have youth. It's not like you are old and then you become young. It only goes one way. The truth is that you've been aging from a long time back. You probably have the feeling that you are young people. But as soon as you were born your aging began. You could say that it began even in your mother's womb. As you grew there, you became older than you were previously. Then birth occurred. If you hadn't aged, there would have been no birth. You would have just remained in the womb. Then as you grow bit by bit, 
from infant to child and on, it is more aging. So by the time you have reached this point, you can certainly say that you are old. You don't feel that you are old, you don't see it. But if you hadn't aged, you wouldn't be at this stage of your life now. It's better to think that you are old already, and then you will feel the importance of having real Dhamma practice in your life. Then eventually, nobility and virtue will result. You should begin with virtuous ways right from today, when you are relatively young, and later on you will certainly have well-being. Creating good karma in the presence, there is no miserable result later on. That's a good principle to follow. Actions that bring distress later on are those you can avoid. These are good things to give careful consideration in your youth. But if you have the idea that you must deal with different pressing matters before you can practice Dhamma, there will likely never come such a time. In Buddhism, our actions should be aimed at making body and speech pure first. This is spoken of as sila, or morality. That's a simple way to put it. If the body and speech are pure, then there will be calmness and the mind will be firmly established. This is speaking in a simplified way. What is this calmness about? If you haven't stolen anything, you're free from worry. When the police come looking for a thief, you can relax because you know it's not you they're after. If your mind is in this condition, free of anxiety, then when sense activity and thinking occur, you are able to know them clearly. Briefly, this is called the progression of morality, concentration, and wisdom. Earlier, we learned that to practice samadhi, we need a teacher. I'll relate the following from my own studies. You had to have a teacher. You brought incense, candles, and flowers to the teacher. You began your recitation, making obeisance to him, and then you supplicated and prayed, May this take effect in me. May sila that is not pure become pure. May samadhi come to reside in my mind. We studied the text, and then we did the complete recitation of the factors of concentration, the different types of joy and rapture and so on. We invited samadhi to come, and then we sat. But I never saw it come. I just sat there and got worked up because nothing was happening. So I started to think, eh, this is not the way to do it. If you could just invite virtue and concentration and they would come, that would certainly be easy. But it seems it's up to us to invest some effort here to make it happen. This is how it started to look to me. So I discarded the way I had learned. In practice, some come to see easily, some with difficulty. But whatever the case, never mind. Difficult or easy, the Buddha said not to be heedless. Just that. Don't be heedless. Why? Because life is not certain. Wherever we start to think that things are certain, uncertainty is lurking right there. Heedlessness is just holding things as certain. It is grasping at certainty where there is no certainty and looking for truth in things that are not true. Be careful. They are likely to bite you sometime in the future. So in dealing with things, true or false, good or bad, pleasing or displeasing, never mind. It's important to train the mind to accord with the path, which means establishing right view. Please don't be careless. 
Don't get carried away building anything up, making a big deal out of it to the point that you get lost. If there is disappointment and upset over things, know that there is unhappiness, but don't let the suffering exceed the truth of what it is. If you like things, don't get carried away. You can have the liking, but it should not become excessive. In the local idiom we say, don't get drunk. When you meet unhappy situations, don't become drunk with unhappiness. When you experience happiness or pleasure, don't become drunk with that. We say, don't get drunk, but it just means not to let things go to excess. Have a sense of moderation. If things stay with us, that's okay. If things leave us, that is okay. But if we are intoxicated with things, we suffer when we lose them. Or if unpleasant phenomena stay and won't leave, we suffer. If we grasp them firmly, we exceed the truth of them and lose the path. This is not Dhamma, and we are not practitioners of Dhamma. This excess leads us to stray from the path. This straying is wrong view, which is the cause of suffering. The explanations about practice are aimed at knowing the cessation of suffering. Practicing according to that understanding is simply practicing to realize the cessation of suffering. If we have this kind of view, we know suffering and how it arises. We know its cessation and the way to practice to bring about cessation. This is what is called knowledge in Buddhism. It doesn't refer to anything else. If we don't understand suffering, we are going to get involved in suffering without any moderation. If we like something, we are not likely to establish any limits. There will be no reflection on whether or not it is really beneficial, and we won't heed anyone's counsel. No one will be able to stop us. Someone may be gorging himself on his favorite delicacies, and no matter what you tell him, he has no desire to control himself. No problem, I assure you. To him it's all good, simply because he likes it. He doesn't think about later in the day when he will feel sick and bloated. When it's too late, he is taken by surprise and gets upset. So the Buddha wanted us to know this is suffering. This is the cause of suffering. This is the ending of suffering. And this is the path to ending suffering. All practice can be summarized into these factors. This is really all there is. To put the Dhamma into concise, succinct terms, there is suffering born and suffering passing away. Outside of this, there is nothing else. Suffering arises, suffering passes away. Why are we suffering, lost in the cycle of samsara, or conditioned existence? Because we don't know these things according to the truth. We don't know suffering, so we pick up suffering, thinking it will bring happiness, and it ends up biting us. Like a farmer who sees a cobra lying alone in the field and feels sorry for it, he thinks, we should have loving kindness toward creatures and give them a little help and comfort. He doesn't know what it really is. He doesn't know this is a creature that will inflict terrible pain. So he picks it up and gently holds it to himself. When it feels the warmth and comfort, it bites him. This happens because of good intentions, because there is no knowledge. This is something that can kill. 
You should understand this. It is just the same for us when we don't understand suffering. It's coming into existence. It's cessation and the way to cessation. All suffering and unsatisfactory experience come from causes. When the causes end, the suffering ends. All dharmas, whether pleasant or unpleasant, arise from causes. Knowing the four aspects, suffering, its arising, cessation, and the path, is all we need. No other dhamma is necessary because everything is naturally condensed into these aspects. The points of contact, the receiving apparatus, are the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. When the mind is aware and recognizes that experience is suffering, it will let go. It actually lets go in a great hurry. So you who practice, please know this clearly. Knowing this important fact will enable you to be decisive in your practice. There are many scholarly and scriptural approaches to elucidate and help people see this clearly. Some of you have no doubt studied the suttas and the Abhidhamma. They talk extensively about the mind, and you may have gotten the idea that you need to learn all of this. It seems like a good thing, but you can get stuck in the discussion without really knowing what it is pointing out. You merely learn to enumerate the things that the scriptures say. An easy example is the study of arithmetic. Some people have to learn methodically, step by step, and then they are able to do things with numbers. But for some, this isn't necessary. They have a natural affinity for numbers, so they don't need to learn the method of adding, the method of subtracting, and so on. They merely use the method of thinking, and they can intuitively figure sums, knowing immediately the same things as the person who has studied laboriously and employs the learned methods. There are different approaches for different kinds of people. The results are of equal worth, but the ways of reaching them are different. You could say that the intuitive people have no brand name. They haven't undergone a standard course of study. They haven't learned methods, but they know just the same and can get the same results. Their knowledge is also valid and useful. You can practice without much study and still know well. The Pajeka Buddhas, the solitary enlightened ones who become awakened without a teacher, are a good example of this. They can't teach anyone, but they can instruct themselves. Though they know within themselves, they cannot tell others. They are always peaceful and radiant, but they cannot teach anyone else. It's like being a mute. A mute can dream, and in the dream, they, f they see, f see fields, mountains, animals, and so on. When they wake, they can't tell others about it. If an ordinary person dreams of snakes, they can tell others about the snakes they saw. If they dream of cattle, they can tell others about the cattle. The Bajaka Buddhas are just like a mute who has dreamed about something. Still, they have no desire, anger, or delusion, and are out of the cycle of birth and death. Their burden is small. The mute has the same knowledge and experience as the one who sees the various things in dreams and is able to speak about it. In their knowledge, they are equal. So all these things are within. The Buddha wanted us to seek out the truth. This is where truth is. When something is dirty, there are those who will simply try to avoid it. Actually, the problem is how to clean it. 
When you wash and scrub it, you see cleanliness in the same place where there was dirt. But some will see the unclean and want to get away from it, thinking the clean must be somewhere else. Cleanliness and dirtiness are mixed together. The deluded sentient being and the enlightened one are mixed together. Knowing and not knowing are mixed together. When we can separate them out, we see clearly. If we look at the life history of the Buddha, we see that he didn't take any shortcuts. He really did things right. But for us, there's no end to the story. With our minds, when something comes and we like it, in the end there will be sadness. Why is that? Something we don't like we can lose or discard without any sadness. Why is that? It is ordinary, an extremely ordinary occurrence for us. Let all of us enter the practice with correct understanding. Then there will be no returning. Like the stream enterer whose mind is inclined toward the Dhamma. Then in living together there will be very few problems. If we all get to this point of inclining the mind to Dhamma, we will be in harmony. Whatever anyone may say to us, we won't take our reactions as the standard. If we have a sense of responsibility, we will be honest with each other, without jealousy or strife. This is the way of people whose minds are bent to the stream. Where do such people come from? From those whose minds had not yet bent, literally called the thick ones. Those who become virtuous people and eventually awaken beings are originally just this class of people, no other. So to summarize what our practice is about, we can use the terms that traditionally describe the four virtuous qualities of the Sangha or the community of genuine practitioners. Whoever practices well, who is upright, who practices to escape from saksara, who practices by way of body, speech, and mind, who practices wisely by way of body, speech, and mind, will find it all coming together at the one point of accomplishment. Okay, I'll leave it there. Putujana, sick one. Yes, yes, Putujana is... is uh, yeah, Ajahn Jayasama said, well, we should call them thickies. <laughs> Yeah. Before we, oh. Okay, yeah, go ahead. You got uh, the mic. We, we are encouraged to see, you know, not self, impermanence, and dukkha in the five khandhas, <coughs> correct? Yeah. And uh, at least in, in my case, you know, it's possible, you know, this is form, this is feeling, <coughs> this is uh, perception, this is mental formations or, or volitions. Yeah. But I have no idea, or I've never been able to clearly see or even unclearly see what consciousness might be. So in the sense that, okay, this is consciousness, and therefore I can see it's arising, it's passing away. Uh, for the other ones, it's, you know, it's possible, but for consciousness, it is not for me. Well, I mean, one of the things is just the... the uh, one is also not to think that you've got to actually s separate a thing out and make it stand on its own. Uh, as a, because it's, and I think I mentioned it the other day in a sutta, the Buddha talks about these elements of, of these, these five aggregates are conjoined, they are not disjoined. And it's, a, it's an important aspect. And of course, 
it, it's, it's, it's more known through inference in the sense that, well, just the fact that I know something, I know that I'm seeing, I know that I'm hearing, that is consciousness. It's just the quality of knowing uh, on this basic level and, f- very f- and fundamental level of function. It's that function of knowing the, the sense doors uh, and, the, and the feelings and thoughts that do arise from that uh, and the memories and perceptions that arise from that. So that's the, the function of, of consciousness. So then you say, well, of course I know that. Um, but uh, it's it's in the uh, yeah that it, it's in it's more in terms of reflecting inference and 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 recollecting oh yes right as opposed to trying to find the because uh, one of the things is is you know part of it is a, a, a certain confusion that we have in the English language because in in say Judeo Christian Western philosophy, psychology, uh, religion, uh, there is a use of terminology of consciousness being something quite separate. Um, and, and Buddhism has, a, has a, 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 a bit different take on that in the sense of it. I mean, it is separate, but it's also, in, you know, it, it is conjoined, it's not disjoined. And it's 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 known through recognizing. Oh yeah, I did. I do know that. I did know that. And then there's times when you don't know. Just you know, either through forgetting or lack of mindfulness, or just like I began to. Did I do the namo? <laughs> you know, was I conscious? Well, I was for a little bit, but but you know, it, it, it you know you 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 start thinking about something else and and. Uh, and you move on, so you you know you it, it, you forget. Uh, so I mean that's that's consciousness is still functioning, but it's it's the purpose of course of our practice and meditation is a, a continuity of clarity and discernment and a recognizing that this is not me, this is not mine, this is not myself. I'm not going to be able to separate something out and say, this is my consciousness. This is, it's always going to be this way. Lampaw, in the last sutta that you read to the householder with yeah. the four conditions, yeah. um, the first three of which were confirmed confidence in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, yeah. in this case, what does confirmed mean? Does it signify one with attainments or does it mean something else? Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it, when it's when it's uh, usually when it's saying confirm confidence, uh, it means maybe like an unshakable confidence, mm-hmm. uh, a, uh, a, a a sort of a not not fle- fleeting or flighty uh, confidence. Uh, uh, it's solid, and so that and and there is a fundamental change in the in the nature of the of the mind. Uh, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't. It's not going to be prone to doubt about mm-hmm. the efficacy of, of Buddha Dhamma and Sangha. Yeah. Just one follow-up. So, was he saying in that case that that householder was in fact already? Um, yes, actually, okay. Yeah, that's that's a uh, <clears throat> that is something that uh, um, that is yeah is a part of uh, Mahanama. 
uh, as a cousin of the Buddha and someone who drew close to the Buddha right from the early days of the Buddha teaching. Um, <clears throat> Uh, the had tremendous faith and and was declared a, a stream mentor early on and then and he uh, had to take on the duties of being the leader of the Sakyans. Uh and uh, but was a uh, his brother was Anuruddha and Anuruddha was not at all keen on taking on the duties of being uh, a uh, uh, the the leader of the the ruler of the Sakyans, so Mahanama was was left holding the bag. <coughs> Thank you. So it's not just strong confidence. He was he was already attained, and that's yeah, why he yeah. shouldn't worry. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, but it is also interesting in the sense that that as a stream enterer, you know, you can, you know, the mind is not. Totally, you know, like as and Ajahn Chah was saying, you know, stream energy, you know, yeah, they can still experience desire and can get, get upset, or, but it's they don't believe it. Nobody's going to convince them. I mean, it's, you know, fleet, it comes through the mind or can come through the mind, but it's not, uh, doesn't have a solid foundation. Householder in Patabido, Pupuk Lian um, translate in Thai because I'm not sure. It's like a special term. No, no, Karawat. 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 Ramen in Thai Pidok. What That's a good question. Kahapati. Kahapati, which means, yeah, Kahapati in Pali. Karawasa. So that's where Karawat comes from. Karawasa. Mm. Perception is Perception is Sanya. 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 I was just going to make a note on uh, Vinyana as divided knowing as a way to understand it. Yeah. And I think uh, you mentioned that at one, one point. Yeah. Vinyana, Vinyana is divided knowing knowing by way of the eye, knowing by way of the ear, knowing by way of the nose, and so on. Yeah. V is to divide, to separate. You've got to v separate stuff out all the time. V is to divide, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah separate out. Oh, I just I thought it was interesting. Ajahn Chah, he spoke on a gentleman grabbing a snake, and he has this like really wholesome desire, like um, yeah. metta for this snake. Yeah. But there's a bad result. Right? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, even though you have a really good intention, you still got to have wisdom. And it's it's a uh, knowledge and understanding has to be has to be cultivated. Seemed like a good idea. Yeah, it seemed like a good idea at the time. That's a, that's an old refrain of in the human condition. 